This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored well here we go again it's literary treks time this is episode number 283 we are the official star trek books and comics podcast of the trek fm network and i am bruce gibson thank you for joining us again and if you're new welcome i think you're going to enjoy the show and with me as he always is dan <laughs> gunther Hey, how's it going? It feels I I needed like applause and cheering there. That was man, I feel like I should run through some tape or something and just like with my arms waving. Or Have something. you done races, r- running races? Oh, not in a long time. Oh, <laughs> it's, okay. It's been a, it's been a while. <laughs> well, good for you. I don't know. I did I did a 5K once. Uh and it wasn't it was just a few years ago. Uh I think I ran like at one point. But mm-hmm. I walk. It was a walking thing. I walked it. <laughs> yeah, the the ones I did were all like you know charity fundraiser type things, yeah. and there was I remember one time, and I think it was five k as well, and I ran the whole time once, and and I was so proud of myself. But most of the time there was intermittent walking. Yes. <laughs> so I, no lie, sometimes when I'm reading books for this show, I do it on a treadmill. I'm not running. I'm walking. Hmm. But I do it on a treadmill. I can actually read and walk on the treadmill. I like it. It works for me. Nice. That's a great idea. I would love to be able to uh, just walk around the neighborhood reading, but that's very dangerous. So I don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Will you be running into things and walking into the street? (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to be one of those videos that goes viral. Some traffic cam showing me like walking into a fountain or something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that's when the crowd laughs. Ah, there it is. You on, you know? <laughs> the thunderous applause, not quite how I pictured it. <laughs> well, okay, we're not going to be walking as we do this show. So we've got several things to mention. Star Trek Discovery Aftermath number two, that comic series, it's going to be three issues. That has just released recently. So uh, if you haven't picked it up, because on a future episode, we are going to review in the feature all three issues of Aftermath and review it as its one big story. So check that out. I haven't read it yet. I do have it in front of me, but I haven't read it. I read the first one, but I haven't got around to the second one yet. And Dan, I know you didn't read the first one last time we talked, so I'm assuming you haven't read either one yet. 
I've read the first one now. Oh, okay. uh, I haven't read the second one yet. Okay. And so far, so good? Or? So far, so good. I, do, I don't want to, I want to save my thoughts for that right. episode, but yeah, no, so far, so good. I'm, I've been enjoying the Discovery comics and, and this one's up there too. So Excellent. And then we also have Star Trek, the motion picture, the 40th anniversary novelization that is uh, releasing October 1st. You know, October 1st is a big day. Not that just is because a big of day. that. Yeah. Not just because of that. You know, do you know what the else is happening that day, Dan? Oh man, October 1st. Um, it's the first day of the month. Isn't that exciting? That is very exciting. It's not like Mexican Independence Day or something like that. I don't think. Um, gosh, you know, I'm I'm at a loss. I don't know. I can't well, think it, of anything significant that happened that day. It's it's your birthday. Oh, so thank you. <laughs> now, are you going to be celebrating your 40th anniversary? <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Close. Getting close. Getting yeah. close. Unfortunately, but yeah, not yet. okay well then after your birthday comes my birthday on that saturday and then the next week after that october 8th we get the next generation collateral damage that releases by david mack i'm very excited for that one i i saw on his facebook he has his author copies in hand and that cover just looks so gorgeous i love that design i can't wait to get my hands on that oh yeah i made a comment on his post i said gimme 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 (laughs) (laughs) i would love to get a big box of all the same novel for something i don't know why i just think that would be cool i I wouldn't read them all because it's all the same but it just would be cool to me i don't know that would be very cool absolutely (laughs) okay so i we just told you what is out or what's coming out soon so we want that on the radar because all these things we're mentioning we're going to review on a future episode here like like in the next few weeks or so so those are coming but you know we're going to give you a quick review of something that just recently came out that's star trek year five number six that comic so let's take a look at this we've reviewed all the other ones the previous five now we want to do number six here and you know, I get a funny feeling, maybe, just maybe, Dan's going to sing for us. I don't know. We'll find out. Because um, <laughs> that's like been the tradition here lately. I, I, I don't know. I, th- I, think, I think we've tortured the listeners enough. <laughs> oh, well, we'll see. So uh, writer Jody Hauser uh, did this one. And this picks up where we left off of the last issue, where we have this Tholian that uh, it's a little kid Tholian that's on the Enterprise and is in Hura's uh, cabin. She's uh, in his quarters and she's trying to help communicate with it. And all of a sudden there's a breakthrough and they're talking standard to each other. And she doesn't know really why this is starting to happen, but at least it is happening. And she's like, you know, you know, what thing didn't you do, bright eyes? And he says, not hurt ship. Because there's something going on in the ship where people are not hearing what people are actually saying. They're hearing something different, and that's causing fights. And so it's almost implied that the Tholian's saying, you know, whatever's going on on here isn't my fault. And that's what she nicknames him is Bright Eyes. Bright Eyes, Dan. Bright Eyes. Just mentioning. Bright Eyes. Yep. (laughs) You're not going (laughs) to sing (laughs) like the other times. Well, you know... In this scene, Uhura is about to leave the quarters, and then she turns around. No? Okay. And uh, <laughs> I, th- I thought maybe I wouldn't be the only one to sing. 
I just throwing that out there, but uh, you know, yeah, no. yeah. Okay. I don't know. So anyway, um, I also think the the <laughs> Tholian is also saying that because in a couple issues previous, right, the Enterprise crew members accused him of doing something to the warp engines. So I thought he was saying that, or I thought they were saying that they didn't uh, cause that damage as well. I could have been uh, wrong. But that, that makes might maybe more sense because I was thinking, how does the Tholian know that there's something going on in the ship? And it's saying, I'm not, it's not me. I'm not hurting anyone. That's how I took it. And I was mm-hmm. like, how would he know about that? Yeah. Well, we're very used to Star Trek episodes not uh, bleeding into each other. They're all very self-contained. And this is very different. So it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of one of those things I was like, oh, yeah, way back a few issues ago kind of thing. Um, I, I think this one would, would serve really well to be read as a graphic novel. Uh, and kind of putting all these stories together because uh, it's sometimes hard to remember what happens a few issues ago. Now I'm with you on that. I almost went back and read number five before I read this, but I didn't. Uh, but it, it would kind of help because I was thinking, well, I don't need to read it because they'll probably remind us throughout, but they don't, you know, they mm-hmm. don't really refer to a past to catch the reader up or somebody who just picks up this issue that never read the previous issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just launch you right into it, which is uh, an interesting choice for sure. So yeah, Ihora goes into a conference room with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and she's like, you know what, I think I figured out what's going on. And she gives Kirk a card with a cat on it, and it says, say that it's a dog. And you hear Kirk say, it's a cat, but I'm supposed to say a dog, okay? And then she asks Spock and McCoy to write down what they heard, and that's what they heard, is it's a cat, but I'm supposed to say dog. And Kirk's like, that's not what I said. I just said a dog. And her's like, okay, well, let's play back the recording and hear what you said. And he said, a dog. So how did Spock and McCoy hear him say what he was thinking? <gasps> that's what's happening. They're hearing people's thoughts. They're reading mm-hmm. their minds in a sense. It's kind of an interesting, you know, revelation of what was going on in the last issue because, you know, all these uh, miscommunications that were causing fights and that sort of thing. And then I love the little revelation where, you know, McCoy, um, you know, Kirk says, so something's wrong with everyone's ears. And McCoy says, something's certainly wrong with his ears and indicates Spock. And then just a few panels later, McCoy's like, wait, did you hear? The comment about my ears, doctor? Indeed. <laughs> I love these little, like, that was cute. I thought that was great. Yeah, that was that was probably the cutest part there, the funniest little part in there. Because it's not really a funny issue, but that one was. Um, so then they say, okay, we're all going to start writing down what we're saying so we can communicate until we figure this out. And there's these artifacts that are on the Enterprise, and they start figuring out that, oh, these artifacts, there may be something to these that we brought them on the ship from a previous planet visit. Maybe that has something to do with it. And sure enough, it pretty much is what it is. Uh, but we kind of knew that, too, because in a previous issue, it showed the artifact like sending waves of something out. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things that I guess is fairly self-evident, but the characters do still have to kind of suss it out for themselves. And we also see the Klingons appear. Yeah, because on the cover of the book, right, we see that there's this huge fleet of Klingon ships. So obviously there's going to be tons of Klingons and lots of ships and this big, huge fleet that the Enterprise has to face down, right? No. Oh, wait. No, no, no. There's just the one ship. Just the one ship. 
I feel like I was cheated out of a whole bunch of Klingons, <laughs> but that's okay. That's not a, not a huge deal. Well, maybe they're there and they're just cloaked and we just don't know it. Hmm. But then you'll get all the canon people saying they didn't have cloaking devices then, but <laughs> they did in discovery. So they do actually, have, ah, whatever. <laughs> that's so confusing. Well, that leads me to what I was going to say. When we see these Klingons on their bridge, they're bumpy head Klingons. Mm-hmm. They're not smooth head. And I was kind of surprised by that because, you know, this is the year five and I'm thinking it's trying to look like the last season of Star Trek, the original series. So I'm surprised we saw Klingons with uh, the bumpy heads and, you know, the the clothing or whatever that the bumpy head, you know, the armor or whatever that they wear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was definitely an interesting touch because like we know from enterprise who did the story of how the smooth headed Klingons came to be that they're not all smooth headed. There are bumpy headed Klingons still out there. We just didn't see them much in the original series. So it's, it's definitely an interesting choice to have them be the the ship that they come across here. Also, I got to say the design of the ship's really interesting. Um, kind of almost like an enterprise era type Klingon ship, but also with some maybe discovery Klingon ship, um designs in it as well i really i thought it was cool that they came up with an original design for it no i'm with you on that i I like it you're right it kind of remind me something of a discovery slash kind of enterprise it does fit into that for sure and then of course then we start to realize that even the klingons they're starting to not understand each other because uh the one Klingon says to the captain, the longer they talk, the more you prove you are unworthy of your seat. And he's like, you dare question my worthiness. I said nothing of the sort. You are as mad as they are. And Kirk's like, "Uh uh-oh, it's spilling over there to you guys. (laughs) (laughs) And Kirk kind of does this, uh, I want to say almost bluff, but not quite a bluff, just kind of putting it in terms that the Klingons would more easily understand and, and be willing to go along with. That, you know, these artifacts have put a curse on his ship. These ghosts have risen from this planet and, you know, they're affecting the Klingons as well. So let us go on our way and get rid of these and and that sort of thing. Which I thought was, I I don't know if it was strictly necessary, but I thought it was an interesting um, tactic for him to take. I also like before they communicate with the Klingons, they were worrying, oh no, you know, they may hear what we're thinking. And then Kirk's like, well, you know what? That's what Klingon, they don't even worry, you know, what they say and what they, they just say what they're thinking. They just, you know, so, hey, they, this might actually work to our advantage. They might like us, they might like us even better now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that, you know, Klingon in your faceness, I guess. <laughs> uh, so basically, you know, they figure it's the artifacts, they're putting them on the planet that they got them from and, you know, things are starting to wear off and, but we still have bright eyes. And so that's going to lead us into the next issue. And we're still dealing with bright eyes, Dan, bright eyes. Did I say mm-hmm. it? Bright yep. eyes. Yep. Bright eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Still yep. not going to sing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um this yeah, is quite and, a this is quite a turnaround for you that's all i have to say oh yeah 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 you yeah, know anyway. every now and then it's good to just not sing so much yeah so the end of the um <laughs> the end of the issue we have uhura based on the experiences in this issue um is kind of working on the universal translator and, and figures she's kind of got the tholian figured out so 
that that's pretty cool. And we'll definitely, I'm assuming, see more communication with the Tholian in the future. And the Enterprise zips off across a starscape. And I'm looking in this starscape and it I don't see a total eclipse of anything behind the Enterprise. But, you know, there's a lot of moons and stuff, so it's definitely possible. Total eclipse of the heart. There oh, we go. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. By the way, that universal translator kind of looks like a lightsaber. <laughs> I've always thought so, because they had it in the Metamorphosis was the episode. Um, I was like, oh, you know, Kirk's looking down the barrel of it. Is it <laughs> just going to turn on? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, that uh, wraps up that issue. Of course, we'll do issue number seven when it comes out next month. But check it out. Number six is out for your reading pleasure. And now let's go to our listener feedback. So we posted the episode number 281, where we reviewed Before Dishonor by Peter David. That's in the Babel Conference, and we have some comments there that we would like to read. And our first comment is from Matt Rushing. My gosh, that guy used to be on this show. He says, I remember disliking this book a great deal when I read it and being so frustrated with all the Borg stories. I was just over the Borg until Destiny. And then I replied to him and I said, well, what about the cover? And he said, worst cover ever. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Brett French responded, death and winners cover though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, definitely mixed feelings on this novel. I actually just recently posted my review in Reddit and the comments there are overwhelmingly negative about this novel. So, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. It's a different, different areas seem to have different. It's, it's kind of interesting because there were a lot of positive comments about, uh, about this book. But the next comment, unfortunately, by Jeremy Campbell is also not a positive comment. He says, I kind of felt like the Borg went off the rails and I didn't really find it believable. Also wasn't a fan of the humor and it took me out of the book. So I think that's another vote against uh, Before Dishonor here as well. Yeah, well, Patrick Carlin just says the Doomsday Machine is on Heroes and Icons right now. So <laughs> <laughs> he was watching that episode on TV. So if you caught that comment four days ago, <laughs> you were able to catch it as well. That's right. <laughs> well, Bob Smith says... I just can't handle the nonstop flood of corny jokes in Peter David's books. No matter how dramatic a scene is supposed to be, he can't help but squeeze in a few eye rollers. How many people do you know have the same exact sense of humor as you? One or two come close in a lifetime, maybe? The problem with writers who use a lot of comedy in their stories is that all the characters have the same sense of humor, the authors. It's the equivalent of a Scottish writer giving all of his characters a thick burr, regardless of their nationality. Now I want to read a novel by Scotty. But um, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree in terms of this book. That's how it felt. It felt like everybody just kind of had that snarky Peter David sarcastic sense of humor. Um, so I get where you're coming from. I, I think people, I think some writers can handle it really well. And Peter David does it really well in other novels. This one just strikes me as an anomaly for some reason. Yeah. And Liam Smith says, as a massive Treklet fan, I have read this book once and no intention of doing so again. I'm not sure whether it was a below good book or just suffers from being an average follow up to one of the greatest Trek novels ever. Vendetta, of course. I do not know. Oh, side note from Bruce. We're reviewing Vendetta on this episode in the feature. What? Yes. Oh, 
Oops. <laughs> I meant Probably to say that earlier. That. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Lee Moses says, I think that, I think the pad silliness, pad meaning Peter David, the pad silliness got to be too much for me as things went along. He says that the more Trek books he wrote, the further off the rails Peter started to get. And the same thing cannot be said about Peter's non-Trek book novels, such as the Sir Apropos books, or better yet, his Nightlife trilogy. He says he cannot recommend them highly enough. I have never read those. I've, I've had them on my list forever, and I've never gotten to them. I've read the Sir Apropos of Nothing books, and I really enjoyed them. Um, it's been a long time. I can't remember a lot about them, but I do remember I really, really enjoyed them. So Matt Rushing chimes in again uh, regarding our, probably my <laughs> criticism of Before Dishonor, when he says, I don't think there's any issue with giving something a low rating if you have good constructive reasons for why it does not work for you. I think doing that well is something we need more of in fandom, not hating on something, but just saying, hey, this does not work for me, and this is what I think doesn't work. Here, here. I absolutely agree. I like constructive criticism. I don't like when people just blanket hate something because it's brand new or something like that. I like when people have reasoned uh, opinions for why they dislike something. And then once you've made those opinions, move on. Here, here. And Brandon Harbeck says, I still love Before Dishonor. So we got to love. There we go. Oh, there we go. Yep. The inconsistencies with the other books in the TNG relaunch don't bother me too much. When they conflict, I go with the Before Dishonor version because I like that story more than the ones it connects to. A big part of why I like this book is that Peter David loves writing Picard, Q, Worf, The Borg, Spock, and Seven, and they always come across as amazing in his works. Since I share a soft spot for all of them, too, I don't mind this. Well, good, Brandon. I'm glad to hear that we have a positive review on Before Dishonor. And it's like Dan was saying, there's negatives out there, and then there's people that love it. I mean, it's just, you know, it just, yeah, it's like what we're saying, even if you don't like something, as long as it's constructive criticism and it works for you or doesn't work for you, that's cool. Definitely. Well, another in the positive column, I think, is Justin Ozer's comment. He says, I hadn't read this one before, although I have read Destiny, but I did really enjoy it. I liked the continuing evolution of the Borg here, the Doomsday Machine slash Vendetta connections, the scenes with Seven and Spock, and really most of the novel. The two things I did have issues with were the mutiny and the big spoiler thing that happens toward the end. Overall, though, like Bruce, I found myself wanting to keep going to the next page and the next chapter because I was enjoying it a lot. Interestingly, when I posted about this novel in three Trek books and comics groups on Facebook, most of the comments were positive about the novel, with only a few being negative. I think there are more fans of this novel than it might seem. I'd give it four out of five indestructible Starfleet Command bunkers. All right. Yeah, exactly. It's like I, I, there was things in there that just didn't fit right to me or work but at the same time i i kept going and by the way just so anybody you know if you're wondering like how i score things if i score anything at like a two out of five or one out of five that typically is if i'm saying it's a book that i had a hard time getting through like i just didn't want to keep going so that's why i had to give this one at least a three i don't remember what i gave it but um because i did want to keep reading it so Anyway, Ostrecki says, great impersonation of Khan, reading my comment out, Dan Gunther. Yes, Dan, <laughs> I thought you did a great job. Not only can you sing, you do good impersonations of Khan. 
Oh, well, uh, you have a low bar, <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> Ostrecki says, I know the action was a little bit comic booky and some of the characterizations were a little off, but I loved the over-the-top action. I read this in two sittings over one weekend. I couldn't put it down. See, there you go. So some of the things he says he liked is Lady Q versus Borg conversation, character of Grim Vargo, Picard and Spock scenes, Pluto planet debate solved. <laughs> uh. <laughs> the Picard directive, do whatever he likes to stop the Borg. And he gives it three and a half standard Borg starships. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Kay Frick says, I think this may be the only Peter David book that I have read and I wasn't impressed with it. The Pluto scene was my favorite and the only part of the book that I have read more than once. It has been a few years since I read it, but I remember having many of the same thoughts you have about it. Some scenes were great, but some scenes were very annoying. Grim Vargo was probably my favorite character in the book. As I listen to your conversation, I wonder if this was written during an, an editor change and if Peter David was frustrated enough by it to want this to be his last Trek novel. He may be best at writing standalone books, and he might have been very uncomfortable with the more writer's room-like continuity of the post-Nemesis series. Well, I don't know. I, it's kind of hard to, after the fact, uh, know exactly his motivations and stuff, but... Uh, Personally, I think it felt like he wasn't as into this as he was his other books, but I might be totally wrong about that as well. Well, it'll be interesting what we have to say when we get to Vendetta later here in the feature. Hmm, interesting. And our last comment on Facebook is from Andy Allridge. He says, this has been the first year I've got into reading Star Trek novels. Ooh, yay, good for you. I'm a lifetime Trek fan, but apart from reading a couple of Trek film novelizations i've never read star trek books so far this year i've read 29 trek novels and now getting through one a week oh my gosh andy you're making me cry um <laughs> i decided to read the post nemesis novels in order and only recently discovered your excellent podcast and to my delight found you were doing the same for me i'm going through the post nemesis books this year yay that's what we were kind of hoping for that, awesome. that, we, that people would be like, oh, wait a second, they're reading, rereading them just like I am. I very much agree with Bruce's concluding thoughts about the book. Far from perfect, but a lot of fun. And I read the book so quickly because I couldn't put it down and kept on wanting to read the next chapter. I was not like this with resistance. I also had the same thoughts about the cover, thinking it was Jerry Ryan with headphones on. Basically the worst <laughs> Trek cover I've seen. I'm really enjoying the post-Nemesis books and recently finished the Destiny trilogy. Before carrying on with TNG, I'm going to detour and read Singular Destiny and the Typhon Pack. Dan and Bruce, what would be your all-time favorite TNG novel? Oh, gosh. Wait. I, we'll answer that in a moment. And then Andy says, I've just finished the Antares Maelstrom this week, so I'm looking forward to listening to your podcast with Greg Cox. His con novels have been some of my favorites. Out of the Trek books I've read this year. I love Gary Seven in the novels. Okay. That was great, Andy. I'm glad that you found the podcast and all that, and you're a big reader of Trek and all this stuff, and you liked the book like I did. And favorite TNG novel of all time. I'm going to tease you on this, Andy. Wait till the end of this episode, and Ooh. I will reveal it. I'm not going to reveal it here in the beginning, Dan. I don't think you should either. I should, do you have a favorite TNG novel? I have one that immediately comes to mind when somebody asks that. Yes. Okay, we're going to save it towards the end. So you got to wait till the end of the show to find out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, of course, they could just fast forward or whatever. Okay, but anyway, real quick. Also, <laughs> uh, the show posted on, uh, I should say it was tweeted out, and uh, D. 
DS9 continuing pointed out that the uh, Duchess woman or whatever, the one Doom, is actually the, is Q. And I don't yeah. think we discussed that. Oh, okay. I don't. I don't remember discussing that. I do remember that revelation, though, right. because because the woman that she was supposed to be had never actually uh, made it to that reception. She was still on her home planet because she was uh, feeling sick or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think we did cover that. But when I read hmm. uh, that comment, I was like, oh yeah, I don't think we mentioned that. So yeah, that's good. Thanks for that one. So uh, that does it for this section of the show. So it's time to go to our feature, and that feature is on Vendetta. And this novel, you know, we just talked about before Dishonor. Now let's talk about Vendetta. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> I thought I was sick of the Borg before. <laughs> okay it's what we've all been waiting for we're into the feature here we're going to talk about vendetta by peter david and this novel was published in 1991 long before before dishonor and the reason we chose to do this novel at this point is for a couple of reasons one mainly is because when we read before dishonor on episode 281 there's a lot of references to Vendetta. So Before Dishonor is almost practically a sequel to the Vendetta novel. And the other reason is because I know I've been mentioning to Dan for a while, oh, at some point I want to do Vendetta. So it was like, now is the perfect time to do that. Because I would like to relate this book to our experience with the novel Before Dishonor. So Dan, real quick, you have read this novel previously to now, right? I have, yes. Um, okay. But but still relatively recently. Uh, I read it for the first time in 2011. Uh, and I know that because it was like the second or third novel that I ever reviewed on my Trek Lit Reviews website. Ooh, wow. Okay. I don't know if I've read that review. I probably did. I just don't remember. So I read this novel shortly after it came out. I have the paperback here in my hand right now that says vendetta the giant novel <laughs> this is back in the day and the funny thing is this is exactly 400 pages but yeah back in the day uh the novels if they ran like three you know over 300 pages were called giant novels and that's like about the length of a typical star trek novel today so they're all giants <laughs> mm -hmm. and any of you current <laughs> authors out there writing star trek novels you're all giants just so you know that now <laughs> They're the authors that Spock's referring to on the bus in Star Trek Four when he goes, ah, the giants. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So this book starts <laughs> off with uh, the overture where we have a cadet Picard with lots of full hair. I really got the impression that he had a full set of hair in this one. So he's yeah, in the academy. <laughs> they made sure to uh, to really focus on that, I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's in a class where uh, the professor is like calling him out on some things and he's speculating that the planet killer from the doomsday machine, it could not have come from another galaxy. And the pro professor's like, why would you say that? And he's like, well, because it eats planets for fuel. And between one galaxy and another galaxy, there aren't, there's too much space with no planets. It wouldn't be able to make it through without starving to death. So it couldn't have come from another galaxy. And, uh, but then what starts to happen is Picard starts to see this woman 
just and no one else sees it. Do you see that woman over there? No, I didn't see anyone. What are you, what are you talking about? And then this mysterious woman just keeps appearing and disappearing, and she starts saying things to him that relate to the machine that was built to fright the soulless ones. And Picard doesn't know what she's talking about, and she's whispering in his ear, and she says a word. And this thing kind of, this situation kind of haunts him for like the rest of his life to the point that he's captain of the Enterprise D, just always in the back of his mind, kind of wondering about her and thinking about her and kind of searching for her. So, Dan, is that kind of weird for Picard? <laughs> it's definitely, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely not something that would be typical for uh, Picard, I think. But it's interesting that it happens at this point in his life where he's young and impressionable and... You know, we, we kind of learn, this was published in 1991, we learn a little bit more about Picard as a cadet later on, in that he's not exactly the most disciplined person and that sort of thing. He seems pretty disciplined in this novel, but, you know, that's, they changed that a little bit, uh, you know, when we learn about him later. But it, it happens at such a, you know, formative po point in his life that I could see why it would stick with him, especially the experience that comes, you know, later that night in his quarters kind of thing where it's all very dramatic and, and uh, a little bit more involved, let's say, than when he sees her in the hall hallways of the of Starfleet Academy. <laughs> yeah, it's very sensual, like it's very something going on there. Like it's weird mm -hmm. because I don't want to get into spoilers, but it's it's almost like she is like his long lost love. It's it's weird. Like I'm not sure if it's really uh, a romantic love feeling he has as we go through the novel for her and her for him. It's kind of a weird thing. Yeah, there's definitely some kind of deep connection, but yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. I I was I was just a little curious about that part and what you thought. So we'll get more into that as we go along. And right now we're trying to say, stay just kind of the early part of the book. So we're not giving out any spoilers in case you don't want to be spoiled. So uh, now, and this isn't a spoiler, we're still in the early part, but there's a planet uh, where there's this, um, they're green beings with antenna and uh, Dantar the eighth. D Dan, is this a, a relative of yours? <laughs> Dantar? I was wondering, um, just looking at my family tree, there's not a lot of green antennaed people okay. in, in my family line, but I just possibly. The, the Dan part just kind of threw me. Maybe, so, maybe a third cousin or something. <laughs> Dantar the eighth is teaching his son, Dantar the ninth, how to carve a Zenator. Now, I don't know what a Zenator is, but I, I just kind of pictured a, a turkey with <laughs> antenna. Yeah. But but apparently it's a little fresher because as he's carving it, they're talking about like blood spurting and stuff. <laughs> yes. I, it seems like an interesting Thanksgiving type holiday. Uh, <laughs> Peter David paints a picture, let's say. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's some kind of celebration, but then it is interrupted by an attack on this home planet. And uh, the, it's on the planet of these people called the Penzati. And the Borg are attacking. And without going into too much detail here, the family is brutally killed. But Dantar the Eighth does survive, which now he's designated as Dantar the Last. And 
His survival was attributed to the destruction of a Borg cube that was approaching the planet, and it was that cube was destroyed by a doomsday machine. Now, this is the start to Act 1, and I thought at this point of the, of the book, I mean, it's very disturbing, it's horrific, it gives us this vivid depiction of what a planet would be like if it was attacked by the Borg, and I really thought that was done very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree entirely. Uh, there's one thing I noticed at the start of the book, Peter David has kind of a foreword where he talks about how, you know, this book's going to be a little dark because it deals with the Borg and and that sort of thing. And I thought that was uh, very apropos. And he strikes a good tone here. Like there's the, a little bit of the comedic stuff, a little bit of the flourish that Peter David puts on things, the little slight bit of absurdist stuff, but it's, it's handled very um, maturely. And, and yeah, it's presented as horrific and disturbing and very dark and entirely appropriate for what's happening, I think. Yeah, because it starts off with this family and, you know, they're having dinner and the, the father's teaching the son how to carve and and it's just kind of a nice you know family situation and then this attack starts to happen on the planet and and people are running scared and the borger beaming down and they're just starting to appear here and there and they're just like killing and attacking and and this just goes on for a while and then a borg you know drone walks into the home and starts you know kills you know, the son and like, you know, all the family members and stuff. I mean, it's just, it's just the kind of thing that we never see in Star Trek with the Borg. It's always the Borg coming to a ship, you know, and it boards the ship or whatever, or they, or the crew boards the ship of the Borg cube and gets assimilated. But we never really see just, you know, how a society is just being attacked by these Borg and they don't even know what they are. And it's just, it, it yeah, mm-hmm. I really thought it was, it was very horrific. Yeah. The one thing that it reminded me of, and I, uh, one scene that I thought was really well done in an episode was uh, Voyager's dark frontier where uh, seven, seven of nine is captured by the Borg and she's with them as they go and assimilate a planet. And we don't see the surface of the planet like we do in this, but we see them bringing people up and there's like a lineup of people, waiting to be assimilated basically. And they're screaming and being held there by drones and like the Borg attacking civilians is a scary thought. And this book does a really good job of putting you in the middle of that and what it would feel like. Yeah. Civilians, children. Yeah. the whole. Yeah, exactly. Thing, so. Ooh. Yeah. Ugh. But anyway, uh, yeah, great start anyway. So, um, <laughs> Now we go to the holodeck, and at first we don't know it's a holodeck, but it probably doesn't take you too long to figure out that that's probably where we are. But we are with Jordy and Data, and they're playing Don Quixote, where uh, Jordy is playing Don Quixote, attacking a windmill to fight injustice through chivalry. So this is symbolic of Jordy's attempts to bring back the consciousness of a captured Borg female. Now, they captured this form this female drone and they were able to pull up some history on her and see that she was a person, a human named Rhiannon Bonaventure. So what did you think of Jordy's storyline in this? Well, first of all, Jordy as Don Quixote trying to 
explain that story to data. I really enjoyed that. And uh, I, I've never read a lot of like, you know, the original, you know, Don Quixote stories. I only know it from like um, other parts of culture. I think the one thing I remember really clearly is uh, Scott Bakula in Quantum Leap when he's leapt into someone who's putting on the musical, the man from La Mancha and he sings, oh. I am my Don Quixote. There you go. You got me to <laughs> sing. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so every time I'm reading this, I'm just thinking of that, uh, which is, you know, other, you know, tilting at windmills and that sort of thing. I just know kind of very surface level stuff about Don Quixote, but the idea of, kind of an impossible dream pursuing this and, and, you know, having an imagination uh, that the impossible can be accomplished even in the face of, you know, uh, huge things stacked against you to keep you from reaching your goal. I, I love that, like explaining that to data and why data just does not understand it. And then the physical comedy and all that stuff. That's all really great. I was laughing through this, but yeah, you can tell very early on that it's, it's going to be a metaphor for what Jordy's going through and what other characters in this book are going through as well. Um, you know, we'll talk about that when we get into the spoilery side of things, but this is definitely a theme that's going to resonate through the whole novel. Uh, for Jordy, like you said, and for other characters as well. So I, I, I like when they do things like that. And, you know, sometimes they beat you over the head with it's the metaphor people. But, you know, I, I like that it's got that through line that kind of ties it all together. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, I, at first, I was I, I, throughout this novel. There's times I feel Jordy just seems a little out of character to me. And I'm saying that now. And, you know, we're going to start now move towards spoilers spoiler light right now as we kind of get into it so this is your warning i'm not going to give anything away right now but it's just the scene was fun it played out well and and i agree with about the metaphor and what happens later but there's just times where i was reading jordy and it just didn't sound right i had a hard time really picturing jordy there's times it worked and there's times it didn't work so much for me yeah i i feel like there that if I have one problem with this novel, that it's that, and it happens with Jordy and a few other characters, I would argue, in the novel as well. Even Data in this opening bit, you know, he's pretty naive, but he's, you know, usually with stuff like literature and stuff, he's able to kind of grasp it a little quicker than he seems to here. So there's just, yeah, little character things that, uh, seem to be a little bit out of place and uh Jordy there's some other things later that come up as well that I think we might be on the same page about I'm curious what your what your thoughts are on that but yeah there's a few character issues with Jordy definitely okay and I kept thinking well this is kind of younger Jordy we've read so much TNG that takes place post nemesis and I'm like okay well maybe I'm just I need to think of Jordy as being younger <laughs> I don't know mm -hmm. You know, but that said, we're still, you know, into season four, possibly season five. I can't remember the start. Yeah, we're into season four into this. When this season four for sure, because yeah. Wesley has left, you know, and all this stuff. So like the latter half of season four for sure. Okay. Yeah. Cause that goes into the next thing I want to talk about. And let's talk about this female Borg. 
This novel was published in early 91, so that was during the fourth season of TNG. So Peter David, the author, was told that there are no such things as female Borg. But that's what he had written into the book. And he argued with somebody named Richard Arnold. Mm, yeah. Anyway, uh, he argued with Richard Arnold about this. And, and I know this because I've heard Peter tell this story at conventions several times. But anyway, um, he insisted on keeping the Borg as a female drone because since we hadn't seen one at the time on the next generation, doesn't mean that they didn't exist, right? And so therefore, they put a disclaimer at the beginning of the book because, you know, Richard Arnold saying, nah, there's no such thing. This doesn't work. This isn't it. And Peter's like, who says, who says there can't be a female Borg? And so they put in the beginning of the book, the plot and background details of Vendetta are solely the author's interpretation of the universe of Star Trek and vary in some respects from the universe as created by Gene Roddenberry. Oh man. Just so you know, Peter did not like that. <laughs> I can't imagine why. No, I mean, so yeah, on the face of it, if I had read that and not known this backstory, I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the case with all the novels. We know they're non-canon, but okay. But knowing this backstory and then just the particular wording of that is just like, that's a, such a slap in the face, right? It's, this is different from the universe as created by Gene Roddenberry, all bless his holy name. <laughs> you know, like, it's just like, you know, your Star Trek isn't Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. It just right. strikes me as so mean. But uh, joining us to talk about these comments is Richard Arnold. Richard, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, and here's the thing. Peter dedicated his book to someone named Richard. Yes, now, I, he did. I just wonder, and I'm pretty sure it's to Richard Arnold, because it says, this one is for Richard, the biggest windmill I know. <laughs> I mean, that's so perfect. And uh, I, I made a comment comparing these two <laughs> um, digs at each other, presumably. Uh, I, I'm not going to repeat it. I, I don't think I should repeat that. But I, it's just so perfect. Like, I love the way he put that because of, of course, of what happens in the novel. We have Don Quixote t tilting at windmills, fighting an impossible fight against an immovable object. <laughs> and, you know, that's what Peter David says he's doing, I presume. But yes. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I well, don't think so. <laughs> you know, in, in defense of Richard Arnold at the time, I mean, again, this is the early 90s. It's, it was a different time in publishing. And so they very much held the authors to keep things very contained in what had been established on screen and not, uh, you know, put all the pieces back in its place, not to create uh different crew members that are central to the story, keep it to the main crew. It was, they were very limited. They didn't have as much freedom as they do today. And so, you know, Peter's using his creativity as like, Oh, I'm going to go, you know, beyond what we've seen on screen because just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So, you know, it was just a different time. And, uh, but that disclaimer, I swear I've seen at that time after this novel, there was a few other novels that had that disclaimer. I'd have to get hmm. digging through my books, but I remember it. I just figured at that time it was something they just started doing and then it went away. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, but we're talking about the female Borg that, you know, female Borgs didn't exist, but 
in this book, a female Borg does exist. And this is the first time we've seen one in Star Trek at that time. So reading the book now and knowing that, well, we've had, you know, a Borg queen. We've had, of course, Seven of Nine. We've had female Borg and other places and novels and things like that. I really thought in a lot of ways, this character is similar to seven of nine, but yet kind of goes in a different direction of where mm-hmm. seven of nine could have gone. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I definitely of course see that in retrospect since seven of nine has come on the scene. I also saw some uh, parallels with Hugh especially with the interest that Jordy takes in uh, this drone's development uh, and again, goes in a very different direction than what happened with Hugh as well. Yeah. That's a good point too. Yeah. About Hugh, because that episode hadn't come out yet by mm-hmm. the time this novel <laughs> was uh, published. So, um, okay. So let's just talk about another type of Borg that we never saw on screen. I don't know if Peter got any pushback on this either, but we have a Ferengi. As a Borg. We've never seen a Ferengi to this day as a Borg drone on screen. Or have we? <laughs> yeah, there had never been a Ferengi Borg. I don't believe that we've seen on screen. We do know that the Borg have encountered the Ferengi because I think Seven of Nine gives the Ferengi a species number, like, you know, species 6241 or whatever. Um, but yeah, we've never seen a Ferengi Borg. Uh, interestingly enough, the uh, the Borg give him a new designation. He's Vastator of Borg, which, uh, you know, like Picard, they gave him Locutus of Borg, and that's Latin for uh, speaker or representative or something like that. Vastator is Latin as well, oddly enough. I don't know why they would use Latin for a Ferengi, but a Vastator is one who devastates or lays waste. So that's where the word devastator or devastate comes from. That's cool. Yeah. Did you have to look that up or did you already know that? I knew it meant something in Latin, but I did have to look it up. (laughs) I took Latin in high school. The only thing I remember is ubi o ubi es meus sub ubi. And it means where where's my underwear. Huh. (laughs) I only know uh, Nolita es bastardis carborundorum. (laughs) What is that? Don't let the bastards grind you down. <laughs> it's it's kind of fake Latin, though. It's not. Yeah. Oh, anyway. Sounds like something a Ferengi would say. <laughs> I only know that. And I know all the Star Trek titles that are in Latin. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, okay. So this Frankie Borg, you know, Damon Terrain, uh, you know, I I remember reading this book years ago, and I remember that there was a Ferengi that was a Borg, like a Locutus, but he didn't play as big a role as I remembered. He's not in here all that much. Yeah, I remember reading this and thinking that he played a much bigger role than he did in here as well. That's interesting, because it's just something that sticks out, and then our brains have this weird way of like emphasizing things that we remember and and casting them in bigger roles. And I remember thinking, you know, it's late in the novel that he shows up again and you're like, Oh yeah, where's he been? Yeah. (laughs) And he really doesn't do a whole lot. I mean, Mm -hmm. not as much as I thought like, yeah, I'm just remembering that there was a lot more involved with him, but there wasn't. So yeah, it's interesting. We both had that impression. Yeah. 
And then we have the captain of the USS Chekhov, and this is Morgan Corsmo. And he was a friend of Picard's, well, he was a rival of Picard's at the Academy. <laughs> and uh, But they get along now, you know, they get along fine, but it is clear that there's some jealousy here from Corsmo with uh, Picard's success. And uh, it really starts to affect his judgment as a captain in this, especially mm-hmm. in a critical moment. He orders the crew to fire on the Enterprise. What is up yeah. with that? So, yeah, this is something and it builds over the course of the novel. We've got the Enterprise uh, chasing down, you know, the Borg and the, the, the doomsday weapon. But we've also got Cosmo on the Chekhov, who has some psychological issues. And I'm hoping there's a counselor aboard his ship as well, because I guess the Chekhov was late getting to Wolf 359 and couldn't make a difference. Yeah. So he he didn't take part there and. You know, in the back of his mind is like, oh, if we were there, we could have made a difference or something like that. And the fact that Picard was the one to uh, overcome the Borg by giving Data the sleep command to shut the Borg down. He's, you know, oh, Picard saved the day again. And so he's got these like jealousy issues. And for a lot of the novel, he he's very hard headed and isn't flexible at all. And, you know, Starfleet has said we have to stop the planet killer. Uh, even if it means helping the Borg destroy it, we're going to stop the planet killer, which is crazy. It's a weapon that can destroy the Borg. Like you're nuts. Let's just help the Borg out. Okay. Um, and you know, in this big climactic fight between the planet killer and the Borg, the enterprise starts firing on the Borg, which, you know, goes against what Cosmo thinks is what they have to do. So he orders his tactical officer to fire on the Enterprise. And uh, everyone's really shocked. And the tactical officer fires phasers and misses and says, oops. And Cosmo says, fire again. He fires again and misses again and goes, <laughs> ah, geez, Captain, I, I don't know what's sorry, I can't. And that's when he kind of comes to his senses finally and realizes how far he's gone. But I, you know, I remember reading this the first time thinking this captain is nuts and how the heck is he still in command at this point? But, um, yeah, he, he has some issues. <laughs> yeah, he does. Um, he didn't come across too much nuts to me cause I kept trying in my head to think, well, you know, I, I guess I get tired of like, you know, Picard's such a great captain and usually when it comes to other captains, they all kind of suck, you know, <laughs> it was like yeah. trying to redeem him as it was going along, you know, but, and he does come to his senses, of course, like you mentioned. The one thing I thought was kind of interesting as I started the chapter where they introduce the Chekhov in this character, they slowly get to the introduction of his name. And they mentioned that this is an Excelsior-class starship. Okay, but in my mind, I thought, and then they said Shelby. And I was like, wait, did they say Excelsior starship or Excalibur starship? Ah. You know? <laughs> and, I thought, wait. and then they kept saying about her and the captain, but they never said the captain's name right away. And I was like, wait, it's too early to be Mackenzie Calhoun. And those books didn't come out till later. And I was like, was did Peter plant the seed of new frontier in this book which now reading no he didn't (laughs) but shelby is the first officer on the ship and it's interesting because he uses shelby so much in the new frontier novels that i didn't feel like he portrayed shelby the way he does in those novels like Mm -hmm. she wasn't as 
Shelby like in here. Like Shelby's kind of just, at least in the new frontier novels, seems very authoritative and really standing up for herself and fighting everybody. I felt she was kind of taking more of a backseat with Cosmo more than I thought she should. I thought she would have been like, you know, sir, you cannot be doing this, you know, cause that's how she was with Calhoun. Yeah, it is. It's definitely, um, I, I, I think fitting a little bit. It's earlier in her career. She's still kind of a go get him officer, but she's, you know, just coming off of best of both worlds and that sort of thing. I would have actually liked her to be written with a little bit more teeth than we got here. Yeah. Um, I kept kind of waiting for it to pay off. Like, why was she included in the novel? And I guess it kind of pays off a few times because she's the Borg expert and Corsmo really is not. So, you know, Corsmo, you know, says, oh, the, we'll do this. And Shelby's like, no, that won't work against the Borg. They'll completely overwhelm you. And he's like, nah, not this ship. You'll see. And Shelby's the expert, right? So she knows how formidable the Borg are. So, you know, they, she was used that way, but I would have liked to see her brought more into the story than she was just based on the biggest, the big role she played in Best of Both Worlds. Yeah. And I think her characterization is pretty consistent with what we saw in the Best of Both Worlds. That's true. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not until really later when we get to New Frontier that she has the more teeth. And that's what I was mm-hmm. kind of expecting in this one. So that was kind of cool. And also just to mention real quick, there's another play in the novel of another ship, uh, the USS uh, Repulse. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pulaski is the medical officer on that ship. So we get a little Pulaski in this book, and we even have an exchange towards the end of the book with Pulaski and Crusher. Pulaski's visiting the Enterprise briefly. Yeah, that was kind of cool. And I that's one thing I like that Peter David is doing continuity-wise here because the Repulse was the ship that Pulaski transferred from at the start of season 2. And so I guess she goes back to that ship after season 2, uh which is, you know, that's kind of cool. Yeah, they must have really missed her. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it, right? <laughs> okay, so now there's a character in here that is referred to in Before Dishonor. And when we were reading Before Dishonor, I was thinking, you know, oh, yeah, I kind of remember this character. So I was glad we went back to this book. And that is Dakara. And she is that mystery woman we were talking about earlier here in the show that was in the overture with Picard in, in, the, in Starfleet Academy as a cadet. So she is, I don't know if I'll pronounce this right, but Shagin. And uh, her people were killed by the Borg, and then she went on to live with Guinan and the Elorians. Dakara is now piloting a larger planet-killing doomsday machine to defeat the Borg. This is her vendetta, is to destroy the Borg because the Borg destroyed her people. And she found the planet killer basically through that exchange with Picard when he said that the planet killer couldn't have come from another universe. And this was kind of a clue to her of where she could maybe go find this so that she could take this machine. That's like 10 times bigger than the doomsday machine we see in the TOS. And she's going to head towards Borg space, kill any Borg in her way and get to Borg space and kill them all. And in order to do so, it's got to eat planets. So she'll try to eat planets with, you know, that are uninhabitable, but, if it gets to a point that they have to eat one with some people on it, well, it will. 
And that's where things get just like a little crazy and she's a little nutty. <laughs> but Picard <laughs> loves her. He loves her. Yep. Oh, but here's the funny thing. She's introduced. Guinan knows who she is, of course, because she lived with Guinan and her people. Mm-hmm. And Guinan says, she's my sister. And that's how one of the chapter ends. And it's like, oh my gosh, Guinan has a sister. And then later it's like, well, she's not like a sister sister. You know, she's like part of my people. So she's like a sister to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it does feel like they had a close familial relationship like maybe yes. her family adopted her kind of thing so yes. it's it's a little closer but yeah they're not they're not blood sisters yeah they're like <laughs> spock burnham brother exactly, sister yeah. sister sister <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a good way to look at it except sarek didn't raise gynan and dakara <laughs> no but still like this really falls into the category of like they should rename the enterprise the USS coincidence right because you know <laughs> like everybody knows everybody yeah that's crazy but this was a really interesting character she's driven by vengeance and also there's you know the idea that she's been influenced by the machine that she's connected to as well. And we saw that a little bit in before dishonor and Jordy was worried that seven of nine would get lost inside this machine. And that's kind of what's happened to Delcara. There's all these disembodied voices of this long dead civilization that have also been destroyed by the Borg and they're screaming out for vengeance and blood. And um, she's really unable to separate herself from their vendetta and uh in fact it's her connection with picard that these disembodied spirits i guess are kind of worried about that they will pull her off of this mission um but they they keep at her and influence her to keep going on this vendetta yeah and there's that thing where picard is really just obsessed with her i don't know it was really weird it's like you know he had to go bored he had to go aboard the doomsday machine and he's trying to get her to come back with him. And, and he kept making comments like, you know, as if, you know, she's so important to him or because, you know, it's like, again, it's almost like she's been haunting him for a long period of time. Like, who's that woman? Who is that woman? And, oh my gosh, here she is. And then Guinan, you know, she can, you know, feel things and, and, and know what's going on with, Dakara and they're trying to convince her that this is not a logical thing to do that what she's trying to do is is not going to work and she's going to kill others by you know allowing this machine to eat planets but to me as it went along Dakara got more and more insane I mean she may have mm-hmm. been insane the whole time but she just continued to get more outraged and insane as we went along and I liked also on the ship we got to see you know the hologram of her just like we saw in Before Dishonor with seven of nine yeah and and this hologram of her continually deteriorates the more that this goes on and i think that's the influence of these voices on her driving her and and i don't know taking vitality from her i'm not sure there i think he was trying to kind of make that connection that they were sapping her life you know for the machine kind of thing or something like that but it's a little bit unclear Okay, so let's talk about what the theme of this book is really about. And it's about striving to achieve something against reality. Now, Picard is striving to have 
Dakara come back with him to the Enterprise, but the reality is that she is wired to fulfill her destiny to rid of the Borg. And Dakara tried to push the Doomsday Machine to Borg space too quickly, which was unrealistic, thus pushing her and the machine between warp space and subspace. And Geordi strived to bring Rihanna and Bonaventure back from the Borg, but she was realistically already dead and could not return. So everybody's like trying to achieve something that they can't necessarily achieve because it's really too unrealistic. Yeah, everyone's tilting against windmills here, which of course brings us back to that metaphor with Don Quixote. And it's it's it really is pushing against reality and trying to achieve the impossible. And this is really borne out with um Delcara and the Doomsday Machine. And the the finale here where she, you know, pushes and pushes and pushes the speed of this ship to beyond anything we've ever seen, at least until Voyager's threshold, you know, closer and closer and closer to warp 10 um, and, you know, gets to infinite speed. I love that metaphor that they used where uh, that, that paradox where you travel half the distance to something for infinity and you never quite reach it. Yeah. I thought that was a really cool metaphor. And uh, I, I read this novel both in 2011 and just recently as an ebook. And when I got to those chapters, I thought something was wrong with the formatting of the book because they do this really cool thing where it's, it starts out sweet Picard was gone and blah, blah, blah. Just a few more minutes is how it ends. And then you flip the page to the next chapter. Sweet Picard was gone, but it wouldn't matter. Blah, 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 blah. Just a few more minutes. You flip it and it's just, she's stuck in that loop for infinity now, which was like really haunting and a really cool way to end her story. Just the fact that she's out there somewhere trapped at this like infinite speed, never able to quite reach her destination is Wow. I loved that ending. Yeah. And chapter 30 is the very last chapter. And it's one page on page 400. It says the universe was an infinity of maybes. She held her breath. The pain was gone. Just a few more minutes, just a few more minutes, just a few more minutes, just a few. And it just keeps going a few more minutes. Yeah. I love that kind of stuff. That's cool. Mm hmm. Very, very cool. And uh, yeah. So getting back to that theme though, of course, Jordy, and his impossible dream to bring Rhiannon back, which proves to be completely impossible. She's gone. Uh, thankfully, you know, when, when Star Trek kind of revisits this idea later with seven of nine, it has a very different outcome, thankfully. But in this case with their level of technology and with how far gone she was, there's just no bringing her back. It looks like. So another impossible dream, another windmill to be tilted at. Exactly. And, you know, this is, again, where I was struggling with Jordy because I felt his obsession was a little too much of trying to get this drone. Because everybody believed, oh, she's she's a drone. She's dead. You can't. She's gone. Troy's not sensing anything in her. But Jordy just kept believing. And even the crew was like, this just what is why is Jordy so obsessed with this? And it's like it was pointed out. Well, you know, he he's an engineer. He, he likes to think he, he likes to fix things. and. I mean, I started buying that, but it's still, you know, they were talking about, you know, his, his blindness and things that he has to overcome and, and machinery is always used. And, and then it's, and he wants to help her get out. And it just, I don't know. It's just, 
I just really couldn't 100% put my finger on why he really felt it so necessary as his goal is to try to save her. The one thing that I kind of appreciated that Peter David tried to do is kind of link uh, Jordy's blindness and use of the visor to seeing what uh, Rhiannon was going through as just a handicap to be overcome. Right. I thought that was interesting, although it's not something we've seen Jordy really struggle with before. It seemed kind of odd that it was focused on, but at the same time, I kind of liked that that connection was made. But yeah, it does feel out of character because it's not his his kind of obsession seems out of character. And this kind of goes to what I was saying before, where a lot of just little things about the characters just don't quite work for me. Um Jordy's obsession for one thing, but also like Dr. Crusher's unwillingness at first to let Jordy even try. Yes, yes. That didn't feel right either. Yeah. And then Peter David, the way he writes Worf always bugs me a little bit. It it works a little bit better in this novel because Worf's kind of earlier version of Worf is more like this, but he always just comes comes across as kind of like an oafish brute who has to fight his way out of everything and his first response is to shoot at something or to hit it. Um, when he did that in Before Dishonor, that really bugged me because Worf is so much more than that by that point. Here it works a little better, but it's still just a little bit too one note. You know, I would have liked a little bit more nuance to his character. I kept noticing that anytime there was something happening on the Enterprise, it would then say, and then Worf shows up. <laughs> <laughs> you know and Worf takes his you know command as a security officer it's like oh and then it's, they're in the transport room so it happens and then Worf shows up <laughs> you know it's hmm. like but you know all these stories are about Worf as you always say absolutely Star Trek is the story of Worf that's right exactly that's um, why he's going to show up in Star Trek Picard <laughs> <laughs> probably yeah and I, I agree with you that some things about the characters fell a little off. Picard was feeling a little off to me, um, but just with his obsession, you know, it just mm-hmm. it was a little too much for me. I would think that Picard would be a little more logical as opposed to he seemed too emotionally driven at times. Mm-hmm. And but yeah, even Troy, when she says she couldn't sense anything in her in the drone, uh, I mean. It, Troy worked okay for me with that, but yeah, I felt like all the crew was just like, come on, Jordy, she's dead. Don't even try. Like they Mm -hmm. weren't even going to try, even though they went through this with Picard when he was the cutest, you know, and even Jordy pointed that out and they're just like, oh, but she's long gone. Troy doesn't sense anything. So we're not even going to try. And Crusher's just like, give it up, give it up. And Picard's like, well, if you really believe it, just go ahead and, you know, you're in charge, Jordy. But it was good. The the scenes with her were good. I, I liked how her character started to come around and everything that she was interested in, anything she responded to was a reflection of going back to Borg, not wanting to become human. So when she sees something mechanical, that interests her. When she lost an arm and you know, the jealousy of uh Dantar the last attacking her and, and that sort of thing, and, and she loses an arm uh in a conflict with him in Ten Forward. You know, they put like, you know, a fake arm on her and, you know, metal arm. And she's like, so like she starts to smile or whatever. And she's looking at because, ooh, it's like a way of going back to the Borg, that machinery that Mm -hmm. I thought was interesting. It was interesting. And like, 
creepy and tragic. Like that was, it was brutal. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Creepy and tragic because it's creepy that she's just like responding to machinery that she wants to become a part of that. Even his visor, she was finding very much an interesting object on Jordy's face is something that really was something she kept wanting to touch and hold. But then at the same time, you know, it's tragic because she is gone. There's, she's not responding to being human again, even on a holodeck of seeing her old self. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't do anything for her. Yeah. That was a brutal scene too, with her past self, sort of. Um, I, I feel like, it was a little bit too, she was a little too human, the hologram, but it was still like when she was like, this is what I become. How can you let this happen? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, it was like, Oh, that's brutal. <laughs> and then the hologram kisses Jordy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cause I mean, I, I think Jordy just has that setting permanently switched on in the holodeck or something. He's like, Oh, whoops. Forgot to turn that off. <laughs> right. Oh, Leah Brahms. Oh, Jordy. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> that guy in holodecks. I tell you. Okay. So now let's get to, I mean, that's basically the whole novel. We've, we've touched on a lot of things, but now let's talk about how this relates to before dishonor. Again, this book came out years and years before before Dishonor came out. And in some ways, this is now a prequel to that novel. So I would just say my thoughts are I enjoy this novel a lot more than Before Dishonor. If anything, Vendetta made Before Dishonor almost knock down a half star for me now. Because this book I thought was so much better than Before Dishonor. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. What do you think between these two books? I absolutely agree. Um, Before Dishonor is not my favorite novel, as I'm sure everyone will remember. This one is close to being one of my favorite novels. it, It just goes to show you, like, Peter David at his best writes incredibly and and puts together a really great story this is one of the great star trek the next generation novels and it's crazy to read it right after before dishonor and to juxtapose those two and before dishonor is left really wanting after having read this one um there's just i i don't know if it's like just the overall tone like there's a there's a more heavy feeling in this novel, the more weight is given to yes, what's is. going on. There yeah. Is. There's not as much jokiness and levity that, uh, well, I like Peter David's sense of humor. Usually it was just, it was just dialed up to 11 in bes- before dishonor. And it was really inappropriate. I think in this novel, the tone is struck just perfectly. I feel like the tone is darker in this. I also feel that there is more detail in this. I think there's more realistic portrayals of things in this. Mm-hmm. I, it, you know, when before Dishonor, there's a lot of things where I'm like, ah, you know, I, I don't see that happening. No, that's kind of wacky. Or that's kind of weird. I'm not even talking about the humor, just the story plot. You know, it's just some yeah. good scenes and, you know, what was happening. It just, just didn't fit right. And it's so interesting how I'm, I'm with you. Like, this is probably one of the better TNG novels out there. But yet the same author writes another one that's one of the worst 
I'm not saying the worst, but one of the, you know, lower end of TNG novels, in my opinion. Even though mm-hmm. I still enjoy Before Dishonor, I will say it was a page turner for me, but it just, I don't want to say this, but kind of sloppy. Agreed. Absolutely agreed on all counts with that. Okay, so that being said, what are our final thoughts, Dan, on Vendetta? Well, I I have to say, like, this discussion has brought up a lot of the issues that I had with this novel. And it sounds like I had a lot, but when it really comes down to it, as I just said, I think this is one of the great Star Trek The Next Generation novels. As a follow-up to The Best of Both Worlds, I think it succeeds in showing a new side of the Borg, but at the same time keeping them menacing, which is something that a lot of later appearances by the Borg had trouble doing. In Voyager, the Borg seem to get watered down until they're not that threatening anymore. Here, they're a huge threat. And then you couple that with the the Doomsday Machine times 10 that's being uh, controlled by Delcara and that plot element. I, I just think this... I, I, I don't like using this word because a lot of people use it um, unironically, but in this case, I, it fully... It, it's epic. This novel is an epic story of, you know, heroes and villains and big, huge battles and, you know, big things happening and some, you know, interesting revelations about the characters and the characters I'm thinking of are Delcara and Rianne and Bonaventure and what has happened to them. Our main characters, I feel like some of their characterizations are mishandled a little bit, but that doesn't take away a lot from how good the story is. Um, so yeah, this is definitely up there. And I think that I would have to give it like four and a half, uh, carved Zinators out of five. <laughs> Interesting that you said four and a half out of five, because I'm sitting here thinking about that as being my score. But I'm not. I'm going to go ahead and give it what I originally thought I would give it. And that's five out of five windmills. I do kind of gravitate towards a four and a half. And the reason is for a lot of the reasons you said, especially like the characterizations of these characters. But when I think about when this book was written and it was published midway through the fourth season. So probably it was written you know, somewhere near the beginning of the fourth season. I remember at that time, I always felt that the characters on the next generation weren't as fun and as open as the characters in the original series. And I really wanted to see them open up a little more and have Hmm. a little more fun interaction with each other and get a little more personal at that time. We got that as the series continued to go on. Now we know these characters intimately. But this book, to me, really brought out the characters more. And that's why I always appreciated with Peter David's novels of the next generation at that time, is it really brought those characters to feel more like family and more a little more fun and a little more open with each other. And I really enjoyed that. So the fact that when I read this novel... Back then, it was my favorite TNG novel for the longest time. And I didn't know if it would stand up today for me. 
And I don't think it's as good as it was when I read it the first time, but it's still damn good. So my heart goes with the five. And so I'm just going to stick with the five out of five windmills. Nice. I like that. That's awesome. Well, it seems like Peter David felt like he was tilting at windmills when he wrote this novel, but for as much struggling against the impossible that he did, I think it resulted in, I'm going to say it, a darn good book. That's right. I used the darn word. Oh, darn, Dan. (laughs) Or Dan Tar. That's your new name on the show is Dan Tar. (laughs) So earlier in the show, if anyone was listening to the listener feedback when we were reading Facebook posts, Andy Aldridge asked the question of what is our favorite TNG novel? And I thought we would say that for the end of the show. And we're at this point now, Dan. So I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite TNG novel? Interesting that you ask me. Uh, It is, in fact, a Peter David novel. It's not this novel. It's definitely not Before Dishonor, (laughs) but it is Q Squared by Peter David. Oh, wow. I knew it's got to be a Q book. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm not even, I I even get a little annoyed with how often Q is used in the novels, Before Dishonor being one of them. But Q Squared is just such a good book. I've read that, I don't know how many times since I was a kid, and I... I'm probably about due. I should read it again. It's it's really good. <laughs> yeah, I had that one on audio tape, just so you know, the audio oh, book wow. on tape. I also had Q and Law on audio Still tape. Still haven't read that one. I think we should revisit those sometime soon. And hmm. I don't remember that much about Q and Law. I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, if you're going to put Loxana Troy and Q together, Peter David's the best author to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I haven't even read it, and I can't argue with that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, my favorite TNG novel is also by Peter David, and it's called Vandetta. <laughs> I kind of figured that's where we were going with this, but... Yeah. It's good to hear you say it. <laughs> you know, and I'm, that's why I'm glad that Andy asked the question that it came up on this episode, because it's like, well, we're going to tackle this. But I honestly think if I sat down and just looked through every TNG novel I've ever read, which is whatever, a couple hundred probably at this point, and if I could remember what I thought of each one of them, maybe Vendetta would not come up on top. But for the longest time... Well, after I read Vendetta, so many TNG novels for at least a decade or so, I kept thinking Vendetta is still my favorite. Vendetta is still my favorite. But as of now, there's been a lot of good books that have come out since then. And especially like when we get to like the Destiny trilogy, I know that's not titled The Next Generation, but mm-hmm. you know, those I really like. I mean, there's some out there I really like that I that are probably even better than Vendetta. But again, it's Vendetta's close to my heart. So. Yeah, and I mean it's it's very deserving. It's I was really close to giving it five out of five as well, and uh, yeah, four and a half. Yeah, it's 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 a really good novel. So. Well, I think I think the four and a half is good, and me giving it a five because if you average it, it really shows that it's near perfect. Mm-hmm. It, it's not perfect, but it's near perfect. It's it's pretty darn close, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I used that darn word again. Oh, darn. Well, it's been fun talking about darn things today, but this isn't the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. 
Okay, that's excellent. And it'll be interesting to see how we interpreted the topic because I know I may have interpreted it uh, maybe a little differently than others did. We'll see. Is this another time travel thing? No, I was, I was going to say no time travel for me as long as Jellicoe doesn't come into this. Sure. Okay, that's, we'll make okay. that deal then. Awesome. <laughs> I'm in. All right. Literary treks. And, you know, the, the stakes are, are really big. You know, we'll, we'll get there, but, you know, this Borg ship threatens Earth and all this kind of stuff. And it just feels like it's it's a lot of really comic booky over the top stuff that doesn't quite fit right with the novel that came before it and the novel that came after it, if that makes sense. <laughs> Primitive Culture, a look at history and culture through Star Trek. And Next Gen Arriving was was this sort of, wow, wow, this is, looks incredible. I know when we look at sort of first season Next Gen now, what we're going is, wow, this is really slow and stagey. But in fact, it was, it was incredible. It was absolutely um, game-changing. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Only because I was watching little bits of Emissary recently is that he would see himself wearing that awful purple swimsuit and think, oh, God, I can't wear that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Every time I see it, I'm like, whoa, I'm really glad I'm not wearing 24th century clothing. (laughs) If you wanted me to murder an entire society, fine. (laughs) But I'm not wearing that bathing suit. Too revealing. That's where I draw the line. (laughs) That's funny. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And we would love it if you would leave us a star rating and written review. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. And we never mention it in in the show here at the end, but I think we're also on Spotify. I have to double check, Ooh. but I'm pretty sure we're on Spotify too. We'll but have to if- add that in. <laughs> but if you'd like to help us keep our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content. Hey, and speaking of exclusive content, we can make some. If anybody has a suggestion of a topic they'd like Dan and I to record as exclusive, we'll do it. Well, we'll consider doing it. I don't know. Within within reason. Within reason. (laughs) We're not going to do a musical. (laughs) Uh, so also other perks are producer credits and more available through our special patrons website, patron zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce host and distribute these shows each month. And we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team again. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash Trek FM. We would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. Find the post for this episode and leave a comment, and we will read it in an upcoming episode. 
If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all our previously covered novels as well as currently reading sections so you know what is coming up for future shows plus great conversations happening about the books and comics. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shane Motala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. And Dan, let me ask you something. When you're not whispering vendetta into your fiance's ear, where can people find you? That's a dangerous game. I don't want to be doing that. Um, but yeah, when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions, uh, where I'm talking about Star Trek most weeks. You can also find me on Facebook.com slash Kurtrats Productions. I have a website at Treklet.com where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. And you can find me in the Babel Conference as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not stabbing at windmills with a huge lance and getting stuck and being pulled around a huge windmill while Data watches, where can we find you? That was so weird. (laughs) I was laughing out loud at that. I loved that. (laughs) I don't even think they identified yet it was Jordy until he was spinning around in the windmill. (laughs) Yeah, it was somewhere I can't remember, but oh man, that was ridiculous. (laughs) Well, you can find me in the windmill on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can find me here on the network with Brandy Chicola doing Live from the Edge, which is a live show the night after the premiere of a Discovery episode. And you can find me on the Star Wars report talking about Star Wars. And of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference. So Dan, just want to say happy early birthday. Oh, thank you. And to you as well. Very shortly following on from my birthday. We're we're both Libra. We're very balanced. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. (laughs) So thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. Call that light light reading reading to reach a zone zone number one. one. (laughs) 